Hello and welcome to Perspective. This is a show by founders of small indie creative agencies giving our perspective on starting and running our own companies. Their aim is to provide useful advice and inspiration to others as well as learn from each other and others we get to come talk on the show. This is our 19th episode. My name is John Dark. I'm a director at Every Interaction. And back with me today, fresh out of storage, we've got Dan Gent from Lighthouse London. Hello, Dan. Hey, John. How's it going? All right. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. And also joining us today, we've got a very special guest, Mr. Andy Budd from Clearlift. Hello, Andy. Oh, hi, John. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? All good here. Yeah. Thanks for putting me before Andy, John. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm chuffed. Oh. Glad you think that highly of me. <laughs> <laughs> How's the uh, beautiful South Coast looking today? Well, it was. It's today started beautifully. It was a it's a light, crisp day, <laughs> chilly but beautiful sun, and then it went all dark and weird and moody. So yeah, kind of a, a day of two halves, I'd say. Oh, that's lovely. I think you should um, you should capture that and put it in a map. That's a nice way to tell the weather. <laughs> cool. So I assume most people know who you are, but just in case we've got listeners who've not heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about Clear Left and what it is that you guys do over there? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, my name is Andy. I'm one of the co-founders and I'm currently the CEO of Clear Left. Um, we are a user-centered design agency, a UX design agency, if you will, and we focus on helping you know, mid to sort of large size clients design core products and services, the kind of products and services they use to kind of make a substantial kind of dent into their um, income. We've been going for 12 years. We started in 2005. We're based in Brighton, 25 people. So, you know, small. That's uh, although I guess it depends really, you know, um, what you count as small. You know, I talk to people, I say I'm 25 and some of them will go, wow, that's huge. We're only a team of six. Other people will look down at you and go, oh, we're a team of 200. So I guess small is relative. I know agencies that are 200 and think they're tiny in comparison to some of the large behemoths out there. But as an agency, um, we were really one of the first people, one of the first agencies in the UK to sort of specialise in UX back in 2005. There were lots of kind of interaction design agencies, usability agencies, or IA agencies around. Um, but as far as we're aware, we are the first, or at least one of maybe a, a very, very small handful that kind of saw the writing on the wall, saw that there was a new way of delivering products and services that was a lot more considered and, and kind of started sort of working in that space. We were an agency that ran one of the first design conferences in the UK and actually ran the first UX conference, um, one of the main UX conferences in the form of UX London. And so I guess our company hasn't only been focused on helping clients solve their kind of like tricky, sort of thorny business challenges through digital design, but also trying to advance the field. And, and we've been doing that by writing books, talking at conferences, running our own events, and trying to make everyone better at what they do. Um, and that often means other agencies, that often means competitors. Um, but I would rather push the industry forward and have everyone benefit than some agent or some organisations or some sectors you see that are very closed off. So I love helping people um, do better work because at the end of the day, if my clients hire somebody who's better than me, I'm happy because they're going to get a great job. I get sad when our clients accidentally hire someone who's worse than us and I want to prevent that. And you know, the best way of doing that is to get hired. But the second way of doing that is to make sure that other agencies out there do great work. Nice. That's a great philosophy and a, a really familiar story. And I think it's also been an inspiration to us and and. What Clearleft have done over the years has certainly helped inspire me and, and what we've done with our business and, and hoping to follow in your sort of footsteps in a way. Wow, that's very kind of you to say so. Thanks. 
Yeah, I think John and I run agencies that are that would consider you larger, but we met at an agency that would consider you small. So we've seen we've seen them both, and and yeah, the uh, the small end of the scale is the one I think we've both always been attracted to. Mm. I mean, I, I I'm I'm totally with you there. One of the reasons that we started Clear Left is that all the sort of co-founders were just fed up of the really poor service that clients got from large agencies, mm. and large agencies often. Um, they often organise themselves around principles that are designed to benefit their bottom line, often at the expense of their clients. Um, they'll hire you know, staff that are too junior, they'll have an ever-evolving circle of freelancers, um, they will um, organise projects um, in a way that kind of suits them, suits their bottom line, suits their availability, rather than you know doing everything they can to kind of help their clients. And I just always hated that approach. You know, I think that, you know, I feel very lucky that clients will want to come and work with Clear Left and I want to make sure they have the best experience possible, get access to the best talent and, and have an agency or a team of people really, because ultimately an agency is just a group of really amazing people doing everything possible for their best interests, not everything possible for their own personal self-interest. That just always seemed wrong to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got a theory which I, I think I've heard you talk about and you share that the sort of large generalist beer moth companies are sort of coming to an end really and that the, the smaller independent specialists are on the rise and probably going to do a little bit better in, in the future landscape of our, our industry. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I think in terms of the quality that's delivered, um, you're going to get... Well, I think the challenge is, it's weird, like with the small agency space, there is a lot more variance. There is There are a lot more really, really great small agencies out there that will do the best work possible, you know, that are really kind of doing amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. But there are also a lot of, you know, if I'm honest, not very good agencies out there that are actually delivering a relatively poor service, a very, relatively old-fashioned service. I think the big agencies kind of weirdly sit in the middle ground. Um they're never they're not they're not able to do a really amazing stuff because of all the layers of process and bureaucracy and, and um you know bottom line that they've got to worry about. Um but what they do effectively is they kind of they manage the bottom end of quality. So a lot of the processes don't make the result great, but they're there to stop it from sucking. For me, I don't want to sell services that are just not sucky. And I don't, if I was a client, I wouldn't want to buy services that are just not sucky. But actually, for a lot of clients that have had terrible experiences with 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 smaller agencies, sometimes that that bigger agency is a safer bet. You're not going to be wowed, but you're not going to be massively disappointed. It's you know, it's kind of like the, the the McDonald's kind of philosophy. If you go to a different country, you might want to go and eat at a McDonald's or a Starbucks, even if there are amazing food options out there. You'll go for the McDonald's or Starbucks because you know you're probably not going to get ill. You're, they're probably going to have your favourite kind of muffin on the menu. And you you kind of know where you are. You're not going to have to navigate a strange menu of things you've never heard of. And I think the big agencies sort of fit in that that safe but uninspiring space. Mm-hmm. That's a accurate but probably terrifying analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to um, I'm definitely going to use that next time I'm talking to a client that's thinking about a big agency. <laughs> so, yeah, pass them off with some some put down around cheap burgers, bad meat, <laughs> that kind of thing. But the thing is, like, I mean, I, I feel free to use that, but I guess 
I, I, I'm not meaning it quite that bad. Like, I don't, I don't think the big agencies are kind of like the greasy spoons. There's a lot to be said for. I mean, I, I, I say this as someone who's a vegetarian and doesn't go into McDonald's. But, you know, they've got process, they've got consistency. And if you walk into a McDonald's in London and you walk into a McDonald's in Indonesia, um, you're going to have the same experience. And for some people, that's what they're looking for. And like if you're a brand like Coca-Cola and you have projects in Indonesia and projects in London, you kind of want to go with an agency that is going to give you the same quality of experience. So I think there are reasons why some clients might prefer to flock to those bigger agencies because they're safety in numbers. Um, but I think for me, I'm kind of like an experiential traveller that wants to take that risk in order to hopefully find some amazing culinary delight. So, yeah, it's horses for courses. And that's one of the great things about the agency world. Like it supports this whole ecosystem, big, small, specialist, generalist. Um, so there's no right way of doing it. There's no right way of doing agency, which I think is brilliant. Mm. Do you think you ended up? How Clear Left is set up because you were started by the the doers, you know, the people who founded it. Were coders, were designers? I don't know. I don't think so, actually, because I see a lot of other agencies that were also started out by doers, but those doers very quickly got seduced. They got seduced by the money. Um, they got seduced by the process and the ego that comes with running an agency. Um, they got seduced by hiring people that said to them, oh, you've got to have a big account management team you've got to grow to this size you've got to exit and so I, I meet very few um, agency founders that actually were started by businessmen most of them were started by by designers and developers like myself but I think the difference is sort of where that initial seed came from um, I think all of the people that started to left you know me Rich and Jeremy we're all bloggers. We were all web standards enthusiasts. And we wanted to get involved in the web because we saw it almost as like a social movement. It was a, it was, it was a, you know, a wind of change blowing through um, society. And you know, now, rather than um, having a, a crappy experience in a physical location with a physical you know, um, brand that you could, be, you could serv- be serviced online, that you could um, uh, sort of democratise communication, you could sort of um, open up the means of production to to individuals and bloggers and small businesses and and you didn't have to be a big brand now that had all the kind of access to that market so i think we were i think we were ultimately we bought in on this kind of vision of the web the open web and also the vision of uh having information shared freely so all of the founders at clear left learned their craft online by other great people like um jared spool or jeffrey zeldman or jeffine who gave their time away freely. And so we came out of that culture and we always wanted to give our time away freely and we always wanted to kind of follow this pursuit of, of perfection and, and the um, the culture of the web. It was never about kind of making large amounts of money for us because frankly, in order to make a lot of money in this industry, you have to grow big and you sort of have to lose your soul. And Clearleft has never been about kind of growing it to flip it. You know, I know an agency in Brighton and they are deliberately growing their company to sell it in five years' time. I don't necessarily agree with that. That's not my uh, sort of flavour. That's not what I'm looking to do. But that's perfectly fine if that's what you are setting out to do, if that's what you and your, your clients and your staff understand is the goal, um, you can definitely do that. But for us, we sort of we love what we do. We'd be doing it anyway. We're in it for the long haul. And I think that's the reason why we've wanted to create a slow-growing, sustainable business rather than a fast cash out quick business because frankly I don't know what I'd do with my time in 
you know, if I if I'd grown a company and sold it like ten years ago or something, I'm sure I could have found something to do with my time. But I think a lot of the companies that sell, the, the founders have got bored and they want to be doing something else. They want to be racing cars. They want to be manning, you know, um, boats or you know, or, or getting into art or whatever that is. I still really love the web. I still think there's a lot of um, problems out there to solve, and you know, I, I don't want to do anything else other than what I'm doing because I'm having too much fun. That's really great to hear. I'm sure that's that's absolutely instrumental to the success that Clearleft have seen. And um, as part of that success, I mean, everyone talks about, and, and we have on this podcast as well about, you know, what does what does success look like to your business and to you in one, three, five years? I'm assuming you kind of been through these exercises before at Clearleft with your business. How how has that sort of changed for you? You've been doing this for 12 years now, so you must have done this several times over the years. What did what did that look like? eight years ago and what did it look like what does that look like today what's changed well i think there's there's a couple of actually slightly different questions kind of hidden in there because you're sort of almost equating success to a timeline and probably an eventual size Mm -hmm. Um, and for some people that is it for some people you know their level of success is judged by the number of staff they have the number of projects they do the turnover of the company etc etc for me that isn't necessarily the end point. That might be a um, a factor that tells you whether you are um, achieving something else. Um, whether you're, you know, if you're growing, that means that you're hopefully doing a good job that people are willing to pay for your services. But I don't think those kind of things should be the the thing that drives you. As I kind of said earlier, the thing that drives Clear Left is doing great design work, um, and we have actively not grown anywhere near as much as we could have done because we've always chosen to do good work over mediocre work so you know for a long time and still today you know we will we will get offered or approached by more people than we can service um some agencies would see that as a great thing and will kind of scale up for us what we do is we use that as a way of maintaining quality so we will you know of the five projects that we get offered we might, you know, or get asked to pitch for, we might turn two or three of those down immediately. And, you know, of the two that we are lucky enough to win, we might end up kind of, um, you know, choosing to go with one rather than the other, because we feel that that client is going to really um, allow us to do the great work that we believe is possible. Um, So I don't see the point in taking on projects that don't allow you to do your your best work ever and so I guess at Clearleft we're constantly trying to find those clients that will allow us to do really great stuff and if it's just a kind of a low-cost project or project for an uninteresting brand or a project that um, is going to you know company that can be difficult to work for um, and not in a good way and is going to sort of restrict our ability to do great work we just won't take it on and that's why we've grown very very slowly you know we could have grown to 60 70 80 100 people now if we wanted to but we would have ended up compromising our goals and we would have ended up putting out a lot of really mediocre work, a lot of um, work that we're not proud of. And you see that in the bigger agencies. The bigger agencies will maybe do 10 or 20 projects a year that are really award worthy and 100 or 200 projects that they'll brush under the carpet. Mm-hmm. No one ever looks at the ones they brush under the carpet. They only look at the, 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 um, the really good things. But the reality is all of the people in that agency have been doing more work that they're not aligned to, more little microsites that, you know, to sell more fizzy pop, you know, more uh, websites to support cigarette companies or 
um, oil companies or whatever it is that those companies do. And a lot of design agencies, you know, unfortunately don't have a really strict moral compass and will kind of service anybody. Um, you know, we turn down work on a variety of reasons. Some of it is because we don't feel that we're going to be able to deliver the service a client is looking for. Sometimes that they you know, as I said, the environment isn't right for us to deliver the kind of standard we're looking for. And sometimes it's just because we don't agree with what the client are doing. And we'd rather not use design to service an industry that we don't think is adding value or, or positivity to the world. So that sounds like a bit of a hippie statement. <laughs> but yeah, so to go back to the original question, if we if we do grow over the next sort of three or five years and we kind of have a bit of a plan to, we've been typically at an agency growing about 20% a year organically. That's not been a thing that we've decided we're going to be at 20%. It's just that that's how the the tempo has risen. And if we carry on going at that that pace we're 25 people now and in five years time we might be 45 people but that's not a target we're not aiming to be 45 we're just saying that if things carry on like they are we'll probably be 45 in five years time and we need to plan the culture and put in place the structure that will allow us to be that size but the purpose for being that size is to win better work to service clients better to be able to diversify what we're doing to have more specialists in the team to yeah, carry on being good. And if it was just about the numbers or the figures of the turnover and not about doing great work, we would stay the size that we are or we'd stay, you know, whatever whatever size was required to meet that bigger, broader goal of doing great work for great people. Right. Just going back to what you were saying with the, you know, having projects that you that you turned down, can you remember a time where that made you nervous or was it always just absolutely natural and you know, did that did you have to build a discipline towards that because it's very easy when you're not getting too many projects to turn down to kind of think well I should probably take this one do you remember a time where that was the case I mean it's it's you know it's always it always sounds easier than it is and it's not like I mean I guess the reason we started doing this is because we noticed a pattern in the early years of clear left We'd take on a project and it wasn't a bad project, but it wasn't a good project. It was kind of similar to ones we'd done before. It didn't look great in the portfolio. It didn't push us forward, but it didn't do us any harm either. And then our dream project would come along and we wouldn't be able to do it. And then six months later, exactly the same thing happened. We'd take a mediocre project on and then our dream project would come along and we wouldn't be able to do it. And after two or, missing two or three dream projects, we kind of just thought, well, this is just daft. Of course, if we were like at the breadline, if we had no money in the bank and we had our mortgages to pay, we're not going to throw our team under the bus in the sake of like being dogmatic. But when we are in a time of um, feast, when there's lots of opportunities out there and when we're feeling confident about the market, which is, you know, I think in our industry has always been relatively strong we will make sensible decisions about where we put our resources. And if there's a project that we think is going to be not because the other thing is a lot of it is it might sound a little bit high and mighty but actually a lot of it is really practical you know we hire really really amazing people and we have to give them really interesting challenges and if we start putting these amazing people on work that they do not enjoy they will go and work somewhere else and so we want to make sure that there's a constant stream of really interesting engaging work to keep the talent we have and i see this all the time i see people in agencies churning out kind of projects that are below them and you can do, you know, you can do that a little bit. And I'm not saying that we we only ever do amazing work. Sometimes there's work that we would do that we would take out of sort of more of a necessity. We, but we would never do a job that we felt we couldn't 
improve, that we couldn't make significantly better, that we couldn't deliver value from, or that we were only taking it for the money. You know, you do have to be pragmatic, but it's more it's more about qualifying. You know, if you've got three or four options, rather than going for them all and growing the team massively, be selective, only go for the two or three that you think you're going to really gel with. Because the converse is, if you take on a project that smells wrong, you're probably going to find that you're going to have a friction-filled time. You're going to have staff that really dislike working with those clients. You're probably going to turn out a mediocre job. And at the end of the day, because you're probably going to end up having to over-service the client, you're probably not going to make any money anyway. So I would prefer to do a smaller number of more profitable projects or more fun projects than end up taking anything that comes along and finding out that actually you've, you've, you've pretty much done that work for free. You know, you spent six months working on a project where the margins are so tight that you made no money and you had a horrible time doing it. Okay, I'm going to play that back to myself next time I'm tempted. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that this sort of uh, quality and passion over quantity approach has really helped clear left be successful over the years? Do you think that's one of the major contributing factors to, to why you've been around so long? Um, I hope so. Um, I mean... Yeah, I, I think we, we like what we do and we because of that, we're able to demonstrate that passion to our customers and hopefully our customers enjoy that and value that. They want to work with people who are passionate rather than people who are just sort of you know, going through the numbers. I think it's allowed us to attract really great people because at the end of the day, agency world is a talent business and you've got to, you've got to attract really great people to work for you. You know, I, I kind of... I semi-joke, uh, you know, semi um, but it's actually true, that my job as a, as a founder is to constantly hire people who are better than me, which makes me the least qualified, least talented person in the company. Um, <laughs> but it's true, you know, I was an okay designer, but I hired better designers. And then if I'm designing, that's just an ego thing when I know there's better designers there. I'm a, you know, I was a pretty good coder, but I've hired better coders. Why would I code unless, you know, I'm just I'm fluffing my own ego? And so your job as a founder is to kind of surround yourself by brilliant minds, by, you know, people who can advise you and do great work. And then you sort of have this coordinating role. And so I think just having, I think ultimately it's about having a set of strong values, having a set of beliefs that can guide you and they can guide you when the going gets tough as well. Because, you know, we have had lean times. I think most agencies have. When those lean times happen, it's good to to have a set of values that you can kind of go, actually, no, this is what we stand for and this is not what we stand for. And that that can that can be, you know, quite a good good thing to kind of hold on to. Yeah, I mean look, looking back over those years, what, what is it that you think you're you're most proud of from what you, what can, what has come out of Clearleft? I mean it's it's the team of people, um, ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, we are only as good as our last piece of work, I think, but that's because we want each piece of work to be better than the last. So if my answer was like, oh, yeah, well, I did that piece of design five or six years ago and that's never been topped, that would really worry me. So it's not a piece of work because I look at every single project coming out of our, our company and it's like, wow, you did a thing there that we've not done before. You know, a new technique, a new approach. You solved a problem that we've never been able to solve before. So every new project is the best one we've done. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is the amazing people that we've had on that journey. You know, taking folks that were new designers and then having them kind of, you know, after they've left Clear Left, go and, you know, run design teams at Twitter or Google or the BBC or The Guardian. 
become public speakers, you know, people who started as interns and are now um, authors and, and speakers on the circuit, you know, par- partly thanks to their experience at Clear Left. You know, seeing that our involvement has added value to the, the industry and that people like you very, very kindly go, oh, well, you know, you've been, a, been an inspiration to us. I think it's all those little stories that are important. The amount of money in the bank, the, the, the nice building, the, the, the pretty accolades and, and, and case studies, I think all in service of that bigger thing. Mm-hmm. And did you, as you were, if you can think back to when you were kind of growing clear left, like you had, you obviously had a, a nice founding team there with kind of a, a mix of, of skills. Do you remember when the first came to the point where you were like, okay, we have a skill missing from this founding team like that's going to stop us growing now. Not, I know you weren't out for growing, but just there was a part where the wheels were about to come off. What, what was the first thing you had to plug with a, with a skill you didn't have as a set of founders? Do you know what? I mean, that, it's going to sound weird, but literally up until about two years ago, we weren't adding skills that the founders didn't necessarily have in the sense of brand new skills. So our very first hire wasn't so much, oh, we, we can't do this thing, we don't know how to do this thing, so we'll hire someone that doesn't know how to do it. For, for you know, the first 20 staff members were really kind of, I guess, effectively extensions of ourselves, UX designers, UI designers, front-end developers. And it was about building out kind of multidisciplinary teams. So it's more about kind of capacity. You know, the, the reason we hired our first um, hire, who actually is still with us, like, 12, like 10, 11 years on, wow. um, James Box, who was our very first permanent staff member, is now our head of UX and has been with us for, for ages. Hiring James, it was more about, well, we, we need more good people to service the clients we have. You know, we had one client and we've got two clients. We need some help. The actual person, I'd say, that, that brought something very different to the company was probably um, Ellen, who is our content strategist. And that was, a, that was a skill that, you know, none of us really had. You know, we all wrote microcopy. We all kind of could do a content um, audit. But, but actually, all the nuances of content strategy, you know, was, was something that we, you know, we couldn't do all of that. So like, but that was like maybe two years ago. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that I don't know if that's the answer to the question you were looking for. Yeah, I, I no, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I I think at the moment one of the challenges we're finding is that our company was built from a designer and a developer, and that's very much at the heart of its culture is is the work and the quality of the work. And our main pain point is uh, finding someone to like run projects. Yeah, you know, when we've got lots of projects and. Basically, we want someone to tidy up after ourselves, essentially. <laughs> but, um, but you know, that's sort of that's something that we've we've done and we've learned how to do. But it's it's not quite one of our core skills, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess in in that sense, I guess the first person who we hired who wasn't quite like the rest of the Clear team was probably our project manager slash studio manager um, back in the day, Sophie. She, she doesn't work with us anymore, but she, she worked with us for a good five or six years. But again, even then, like it didn't feel like um, Sophie was bringing a whole new set of skills that we hadn't um, uh, had before. What she was doing is she was taking a load off of the stuff we were already doing because we were already doing project management just badly. We were already doing... Uh, you know, running stand-ups or, you know, um, 
having kind of you know um, retrospectives and all that kind of stuff that you do in, in project management cycles, we were just we were just not doing it as efficiently as we could. So bringing Sophie in kind of allowed us to do a better job of something we're already doing. But Ellen, I would say, was definitely a new skill um, that we, we we've never we never had before, and that's interesting. And I think the purpose of us growing, if anything, is to kind of bring some more of those new skills in things that none of us currently do, but we believe we should be able to do. Um, and and look for opportunities to kind of yeah find new avenues to explore that will just make us even better at design than we currently are. Sure, yeah, nice. And even the skills like the uh, the content strategy that you said you've just brought in recently in the past two years was that something that you did internally before, or were you using like a, a non permanent external resource to to help with that up until that point? Not really. No, I mean that was that was definitely a new new thing. That was that was us basically taking a punt. That we, you know, if you remember sort of like four or five years back, content strategy suddenly exploded from nowhere. Hmm. And that was something that um, a lot of our clients, particularly clients that had, you know, big content and marketing sites were talking about, but they didn't really understand. They were looking for those kind of skills and services. Mm -hmm. You know, we were okay writers, but we weren't, you know, we weren't copywriters. We weren't sort of. Um, you know, we were doing microcopy, like I said, but we weren't creating tone of voice documentation. We weren't working with the editorial team to look at the content flow and how content gets created. And, you know, one of the big problems, I think, in, in digital design is content. Yeah. But it's not just, you know, I think in smaller sites, you know, there's a lot of kind of like fist smashing and kind of hand stamping around. Well, why hasn't the client kind of given us the content yet? We have to use Laura Mipsum, et cetera, et cetera. Every project. <laughs> yeah. Or like, oh, we have to have every all pieces of content created in advance. Mm-hmm. Neither of those two things are actually particularly useful because it turns out much like the advertising world where you kind of, you know, content and um, design has a kind of an interwoven relationship. You can't just start with all the content and lay the creative on it. You can't just start with the creative and then shove the content in. It's formative and it's the back and forth of that conversation between designer and content creator that creates you know, some of the, the best advertising campaigns ever. And that was a tension that we were starting to feel in the design space is that you know we would either bung a bunch of Laura Ipsum in, but then the content that the client was creating was terrible. Or we'd get them to produce a whole bunch of content, but then we'd be like designing our site around content that didn't quite fit. And having a content sort of guardian on the team meant that we weren't doing that. That meant that we were working in this kind of co-design, pair design, kind of cross-disciplinary way. And that we could solve the problems that our clients were having around content production. It's all very well just saying, well, you've got to give us the content. But they don't know what the content needs to be. They don't know when it needs to be. They don't know what shape it needs to be. And that's now something that we can we can help them with. It's so intricately tied into UX, isn't it? It's very hard to just sort of do that as a completely separate activity outside of the, the skill set of your team and then just sort of have that land on your lap and you've got to deal with it and figure out what to do. And we, you know, we're, we're feeling similar pressures at the moment with the... Because I think a lot of this is about kind of as you grow and as, as projects get bigger, like little kind of cracks start to appear between like the interface effectively between you and and other team members on the client side and another thing that we started to see is the gaps between ux and development Mm -hmm. it's all very well you know um creating pattern portfolios and and code libraries etc etc and you know it's great to kind of you know design and sketch interfaces from the outside in rather than you know, being driven by what the technology can do. You know, we don't want to have be te- technologically determinant 
On the other hand, sometimes you've just got to have technical conversations with clients and putting them in front of a front-end developer, maybe, or putting them in front of a UX designer when actually you want someone that is is more um, understands the architecture of a complicated tech stack. Mm-hmm. So less about people that understand slices of it, but someone that can understand the big picture, understand the challenges of how technology gets deployed, and then can help us provide code or design in a better way that's going to fit with their existing systems. That That is starting to be invaluable. And so we've been working with a couple of really, really big projects with really big clients where having that bridge between technology and design has been really valuable. Now, I would draw the line at calling that person a creative technologist or even a UX developer because um, I think they they refer to slightly different things. So I'm not entirely sure what to call this role, but um, and it's definitely not BA, but it's kind of like that product, technically focused product manager role that I think if you get someone good can be can be super helpful. But anyway, I'm sorry, we're getting we're getting so into the the long <laughs> grass now. It's it's probably too detailed to kind of yeah, carry on that 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 train of thought. But yeah, specialists good. The bigger you get, the more specialists you can bring in, I guess. Yeah, that was a very interesting rabbit hole. I think I'd also be quite interested to hear about how you think that sort of the events and the conference and the community work that you've done over the years. Do you think that's really helped you get good clients at the same time? Um, this is an interesting one. I think I think a lot of people from the outside look at the events and go, "Oh, I see what you've done there. That's really clever. You know, you're building your profile. You're 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 you know, you're obviously um, you know, getting lots of kind of client work from that kind of stuff." Mm-hmm. Weirdly, it's never really been like that. It's never been like that. That's never been the driving factor. But also, it's never been the the result. Like. I, I really wish it was. It would have been a lovely kind of sort of side thing that we could put on a conference. And then at the end of the conference, like loads of clients would come rushing to us and say, wow, you guys are great at curating conferences and picking speakers. Why don't you come and help us design our website? But that never happens. Actually, what happens is they all rush to the stage to talk to the speakers going, that was great. Why don't you come and, and um, help us improve our thing? I see. <laughs> so if anything, we're doing ourselves a disservice because we're, you know, we're giving, you know, we're, we're promoting in some regard. We're, we're we're sort of pushing work to other people and sort of pushing it away from ourselves. So we've never really had that experience. Maybe we're doing conferences wrong. I don't know. Maybe we should be peppering it with like logos and signs and people in outfits, kind of pushing kind of you know flyers at people. But that's just not our style. The conferences, you know, the conferences have come out from that desire to want to improve the industry what happened is me and rich and jeremy went to south by southwest in 2005 i think it was had a really good time came back to the uk tried to find a conference that we could go to that was a little bit like it there was nothing and so we started one and deconstruct um which was that conference was the first ever like digital design conference uh, arguably in in the uk there was um at media which was more on the kind of front-end technical side but um deconstruct was more on the kind of design side we were we were the first or the second conference of its kind but that was just out of basically out of necessity kind of like we want to go to a party like this there isn't anyone running these parties so let's do our own and then it becomes addictive once you've done one and people enjoy it you think oh that was fun i'll do another one and do another one and then you know you wake up eleven years later and you've you know you're going, wow we've you know now the conference sort of circuit has changed and, and the industry's changed crazily, but it's all through this desire to kind of push things forward. That's why we started UX London, 
we started UX London not because we thought, oh, we make a name for ourselves in the UX space. It's because there were no UX meetups to go to. We didn't even realise that in 2009, I think well, that's well, 2008 when we started UX London, we didn't even know any other UX designers. So we thought, oh, well, you know, actually, we put on a, a we put on a, a UX themed deconstruct because we didn't know any UX designers, and we thought, oh, I wonder if there's anybody in the market, you know, or anybody in this space. And 800 people turned out. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. There must be at least 800 people who are interested in UX. And then we sort of spun that off into a separate event. Um, and the same thing we're doing now with leading design. We run a conference called Leading Design, which is all about design leadership. And again, that was because. We've spoken to loads of our friends that have gone from being designers or technologists to leading a small team, to leading a big team, to leading a department, to sometimes you know being the key design leader at a very large tech company. But all of those people that we've grown up with have had the same problems, hiring, growing their team, looking after the culture, building culture, managing up, managing down, managing sideways. And we thought, well, you know, maybe this is something we could help those people with. Um, you know, if we can if we can help design leaders be better design leaders, you know, maybe there was with this one there was a bit more of a kind of well, if we can help design leaders be better and more savvy at their job, they'll make better design decisions, and that that might involve hiring better agencies like Clear Left rather than you know bad agencies like into agency name here. But even then, that was probably like a little side sort of thing. Oh, that could mostly it's just about helping folks do their job better. Uh, the Design Leaders Conference is on later this year, isn't it? It's it's in about three weeks' time, actually. Leading Design, so yeah, okay. it's um, I think what is it? I, I can't I can't remember the dates. It's something like the twenty fourth of the twenty sixth or the twenty sixth or the twenty eighth of October. I'm pretty sure the tickets are sold out now, which I'm really excited about because it was a super big punt. You know, new conferences in this market are always a bit risky because there's so many events going on. But it's sort of you know it's sold out tickets. I'm I'm really really pleased. Nice. Mm, congrats. But to kind of like just, I guess, to answer your question, the conferences were never designed to be a promotional tool or way of winning new work. They've always been done out of love and out of fun. And it's always been like our 20% projects, our side projects. They didn't really make us any money. But as designers, we can't, you know, we can't spin up a new startup because we don't have the technical skills. We're not developers. But it's really easy for us to kind of spin up a new web, you know, web conference. So partly it's just kind of us scratching our own itch and going like organizing the kind of park, as I said before, that we want to go to. But there has been benefit because you know people come to the conferences, they like them, they become aware of Clear Left. And you know, we have had um clients come to us who they were like, oh, well, I went to deconstruct five years ago when I was just a developer, and now or just just a like a designer, and now I'm running this team. And when I thought of agencies to pick. I had fond memories of you guys from that event and I thought we'd throw your name into the hat. So, you know, it does have some ancillary benefits. Like I say, it's a long game. It's like, hey, yeah, five years, six years. Um, It's never been an immediate thing, unfortunately. And I mean, it sounds like the moment you start trying to measure the impact of of those events, you'll you'll lose a little bit of that love, a little bit of the cynicism will come in and and they'll probably go rubbish. So, I mean, it's, it's a, don't want to use the word brand in the wrong way, but... It, it definitely helps. I'm sure it has been a massive part of success, just quite a hard one to measure, I suppose. And we, yeah, and we, we don't bother, you know, we, we do good stuff. It, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm sounding really hippie tonight. I'm not normally like this, but there's a karma element, you know. You do good stuff. You put good stuff out into the world, whether it's a conference for people, whether it's a blog post about something you feel passionate about, whether it's a book or an article or a talk. 
and you hope that you know people appreciate that and and maybe you know in three four five years time you know if they're in a position to hire you to do a thing they might you know they might if you're lucky you know deem it worthy to bring you in but that's always a nice extra result that shouldn't be the purpose and actually i'm seeing a lot more companies and a lot more agencies running conferences deliberately for the brand building deliberately for the marketing deliberately because they want to kind of get embedded in, in the pocket of a particular brand manager or product manager or what have you and i i always find that a little bit creepy it always just seems a little bit disingenuous mm. so i'm um, yeah i'm really hoping that people don't sort of see that's what we're doing uh although i can kind of imagine if you don't know us as a company we might just see that but yeah i'm seeing lots of conferences and the conference market is so saturated at the moment you know, lots of conferences run by agencies that are half full, that are stuffed with free seats full of people that haven't paid just because they need to kind of make up numbers. And you go there and, you know, they're not paying their speakers. The, the MD always has a speaking slot, um, you know, whether they're good at what they do or not, you know, and, and you look at the lineup and it's always packed full of their own staff. And yeah, it's just creepy. That doesn't sound good to <laughs> me. <laughs> No, but it's good to know we've got to do the podcast for at least five years before we get a lead off it. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that, unfortunately, that is true. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at um, things like sort of Paul Boag and Boag World. You know, he's built up so much capital um, over the years. Um, but yeah, it takes it takes a long time. It, you know, it is it is a it is a long slog. But, you know, eventually, you know, all the good stuff you put out into the world will, will come back in some way or another. Absolutely. I met some prospective fans the other day, John, and it felt good. <laughs> oh, really? Excellent. You have to tell me about that later. <laughs> I shall. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not why we do this either. We, we do this because yeah. you know, we're trying to, we're just interested in talking about it and trying to give something back. And... Well, the other thing is I, th- I, I think by, you know, one of my experiences of the reason I used to blog is because I was using it as a way of understanding the world and learning that stuff. And I think a lot of the reason why I run conferences is as well, and I, I suspect that's probably why you run a podcast, you know, you get the benefit of talking to a bunch of people about how they run their business, and that helps you inform your business. And you could just have that as a coffee chat, but you record it and put it out into the world, because it helping you, it might help other people. So you're already getting some benefit from this. And you just decided to amplify that benefit by letting everyone else join in on, on the conversations you have. I think that's cool. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and it, it it was born of of doing it in person, exactly that sort of a peer group with some friends, and we we just sort of talking about this stuff, and it was so useful. It just just seemed to make sense to make it public. Yeah, absolutely. So, what's on the cards for Clearleft in in the next year or so? Any anything special planned? I don't think there's anything sort of special. Special. We had we sort of had our tenth birthday, you mm-hmm. know, like last year. So we had a kind of a nice big party, and that was quite fun. Um. Just kind of more of the same, I guess. You know, we've got some interesting projects in the pipeline at the moment. We're pitching for some fun stuff. If there's one big project that we're kind of pitching for, and if it pans out, that will probably be keeping a, you know, a lot of our team busy for you know a year or eighteen months or something. But it's a it's a pitch, and who knows? I'd, I'd say we've kind of like got a fifty fifty chance of getting it, but um, you know, we might not. And you know, if we don't, then hopefully they'll they'll go with a good agency that will, will service them. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's doing good work and growing the culture. The events that we do are quite fun. I'm going, I love going to events. I love speaking at events. So there'll probably be a whole bunch of trips overseas over the next year. I'm toying with the idea of going to South by Southwest. Uh, I used to go all the time, I guess about 2009, 
kind of stopped going so regularly, but I go every couple of years and it's you know, it's still it's still good fun. It's not quite the same knees up that it used to be, but in terms of diversity of content, there's some really good stuff. We've just been talking about maybe going to the Interactions Conference in New York, which is also you know really interesting. So we might try and get a bit of a, a posse out there. But yeah, other than that, just sort of carrying on doing what we're doing, really, I guess. Good. Well, thanks for coming to speak to us today. It's been it's been really fun, and I'm sure our audience will find it very useful. Great. Well, it's been it's been absolute pleasure. So yeah, I've I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. Well, and yeah, hopefully there were a few little nuggets of wisdom in the kind of general waffle. <laughs> cool. And if if people want to find out more about you and Clearleft, where can they do that? Well, Clearleft is just clearleft.com. Um. Oh well, one yeah, one exciting thing mm-hmm. is that we're just about to. You know, we've been trying to redesign our website for quite a while and we're hopefully going to be getting close to finishing that. Oh, that old chestnut. I know. but And hopefully we're, we're having a little bit of a rebrand. We're not changing the name or anything, but we're kind of revisiting the logo and, ah. and um, our colour palette and our typography. And, and the stuff I've seen the team coming up with has been really, really exciting. So when we finally get ready to launch it, hopefully this side of Christmas, maybe after Christmas, then that will be really um, exciting. And I think that will kind of just solidify and push us forward. Because I think the challenge we have at the moment as a company, like most agencies, is our website is a reflection of where we were maybe three to five years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not a reflection of where we want to be in, in you know two to three years. And so I think um, having that new website out will, and all the branding and messaging that goes with it will be quite exciting. But yeah, at the moment, just clearleft.com is the old site. Um, and I guess andybud.com is my blog, which I kind of post to infrequently um and then andy bud on twitter as well which i you know if you want to hear me ranting about a whole range of things then um go there (laughs) good stuff yeah good luck with the project i hope uh, i look forward to seeing the results cheers we uh we just went through that ourselves recently we um wanted to replace or update our website not completely replace it just add a bit more content talking about you know who we are what we do we hired a content strategist to work with us to help us figure out how to communicate ourselves properly to not rebrand ourselves but figure out what our brand messaging is and try and integrate that into the into the new site into the homepage, into a couple of new content sections that were really about us and just put that live the other week and yeah it's been a great process to do the really sort of content first content strategy driven approach uh, yeah we really enjoyed it and very happy with the results it's been a pretty refreshing way of doing it actually yeah John and I have a running battle about whose website's the most out of date. Uh, <laughs> I've seen some updates on yours recently, John, so suddenly our year-old one is is starting to look a bit tired now. <laughs> I mean, the challenge is part of it, you want to eat your own dog food and you want to you want to do the site perfect. You want to use it as an opportunity to try all the new techniques and all the new processes and et cetera, et cetera. But suddenly you can find yourself spending so much time on a thing that you would never spend that much time on a client site and and also you're never happy with it because you always know that you could do better and then what happens is real life gets in the way and client projects get in the way and then you stop looking at the site particularly if you're small for two three months and then when you come back to it you're not happy with the thing that you left and you kind of start the process all over again so it can be really kind of slow and time consuming um and yeah we've probably been thinking about this site and working on it in one way or another for the last year um so it's kind of i'm really really looking forward to getting it done mm-hmm. i know the feeling <laughs> cool and dan where can people find you you can get me on the tweets at gentus maximus or you can get a uh, lighthouse at we are lighthouse or we are lighthouse.com 
And thanks to everyone for listening. I've been John Dark at Dark John on Twitter from Every Interaction. You can find us online at everyinteraction.com. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or find any of our past episodes, you can do so on our website at perspective.fm. You can send us an email directly to get at perspective.fm. We're on Twitter, underscore perspective.fm. You can find us on iTunes, and we appreciate any ratings and reviews you may leave us there. You know, tweet about the show, share it on Facebook, tell your friends. Everything you do helps spread the word. We're easy to find on your podcast app of choice. Just search for Perspective FM, either in Google Music, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, whatever your podcasting app of choice is. All the links are on our website along with show notes for this episode. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.